This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, how do the Pacers win more than anyone else? Hello, and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann, and my very special guest today is Mark Monteith, who is a member of Pacers.com and a great Indiana Pacers historian. Welcome, Mark, to the program. Nice to be here, Jason. And uh, we are going to talk about the great uh, Indiana Pacers dynasty of the uh, of the 1970s, the team that won uh, three ABA championships and went to five finals appearances in uh, in, in eight seasons. And uh, quite a fantastic team, of course, uh, during that time, led by uh, Roger Brown, Mel Daniels, Freddie Lewis, and Bob Nedelicki, among other uh, among other great players who came along. Uh, George McGinnis, for example. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit first about just what made the Pacers such a special and interesting team? Well, beyond the talent, and they were very fortunate in the beginning years to accumulate this talent. Um, they wound up having great chemistry. I mean, really, the way this thing fell together is pretty remarkable. You know, the Pacers were uh, one of the original ABA franchises in 1967. There had been an effort in the city to get a professional basketball team, you know, an NBA team. Uh, throughout much of the 60s, the Cincinnati Royals would always play a couple games here. And then, you know, when the ABA was formed, it kind of – was perfect you know the the there was already a group here trying to get a team so uh they were happy to jump on board and you think about it you know they wound up hiring mike storn as the first gm and he was actually their second choice and he was marketing director of the cincinnati royals but had a connection with one of the pacer founders and you know freddie lewis had played for the royals that year so they signed Freddie up, gave him a nice raise. So they get Freddie Lewis, their future captain, all-star, really an underrated player. And then, you know, they tried to get uh, Oscar Robertson, 
for the franchise, you know, to be a player coach. And he really wasn't that interested, didn't want to take a chance on a new league. But he said, hey, there's a guy in Dayton named Roger Brown who I've played with in the summers. He's really good. You got to go get him. You know, he, of course, had been banned from the NBA and NCAA um, unfairly, really. Uh, so, okay, you got Freddie Lewis, you got Roger Brown. They draft Bob Nedelicki in their initial draft. And then at the end of their first year, when they were a losing team, 38 and 40, the Minnesota Muskies are in dire financial straits and about to move to Miami and, and uh, be sold. They needed cash immediately to pay off some debts. And the Pacers were able to come up with what was believed to be $100,000 to get Mel Daniels, who had been Rookie of the Year. So, you know, right away they got three All-Stars really, you know, just waiting on him practically. And then, you know, early in the second year, things aren't going well. They decide to make a coaching change. And it just so happens Slick Leonard's up the road half an hour to an hour in Kokomo working for Herf Jones selling class rings. And uh, he decides to... uh, take on the coaching responsibility, never gave up the uh, Herf Jones job for a few years. You know, uh, he'd drive down from Kokomo, really about an hour's drive for practicing games. And you've got uh, an NBA uh, veteran player and coach and a guy who turns out to be a really good coach. So it just came together uh, almost, you know, mystically. You know, it wasn't like you had a great GM who was – an unbelievable judge of talent is just that you had these guys who happened to be available to you. So um, this group wound up having a real special chemistry, you know, and Leonard was the perfect coach for him. He knew when to kick him in the behind. He knew when to throw an arm around him. And, you know, they had their conflicts. It wasn't all roses by any means, but, you know, they, um, Mel Daniels to me was the heart and soul of it. You know, he was the guy who, was so intense and would get in fights and would back his teammates and that type of thing. And on the other hand, he had a guy like Roger Brown who was really laid back and who needed a kick in the behind. And Bob Nedelicki was kind of flaky and needed a kick in the behind. And Freddie Lewis was a natural leader. Then you throw in supplementary players like Billy Keller and other guys, and it just came together. You know, whatever bad luck the Pacers have had over the years, I've always thought that they probably burned up all their good luck and the formative years in the ABA because so many things just fell together for him. So just a combination of talent and chemistry. Yeah. Um, well, that's obviously, you know, what it takes. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds like, um, you, you know, from what I've read and and heard that, um, you know, Slick Leonard really brought a sense of togetherness and purpose to the team and it had them undergo brutal practices and you know gave them a lot of tough love to make them physically and mentally tough but also paired that with a you know a a sense of wanting to be together as a family of getting together after a game for a few minutes after each game for a drink um and also doing things like taking the team to hospital wards with dying kids to show like hey you know we're you know, you're really lucky to be doing what you're doing. Look at what these kids are going through. You know, just shows you what you have, and and, and we sort of had a mix of both the, the the tough and the inspirational. Yeah, no question, tough love. You know, uh, he's that's just an aspect of his personality. You know, I mean, he was a losing coach in the NBA because just didn't have the talent or experience to win with the Chicago Zephyrs, and then you know the Baltimore Bullets when the franchise moved. 
And, uh, you know, he was lucky to get a second chance in the ABA and, you know, wound up inheriting quite a bit of talent. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting when he first took over, it's not like it turned around right away. You know, they continued to struggle. They were, I believe, two and seven when Larry Staberman was fired and Slick was hired. And, uh, you know, they continued to struggle under Slick. Slick left Roger Brown home on a road trip to send a message to him. But even in those early weeks of his coaching uh, period, you know, he would talk really optimistically in the newspapers, like, hey, you might think I'm crazy, but I think we can contend for this division championship, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And really injected some confidence. But he was, you know, he was a butt kicker. He would keep him in the locker room for an hour after the game if they had a bad performance. Like you said, they would have some brutal practices, but they also would get together in the bar on the road and uh, have a drink together, whatever. I mean, back, of course, in this time, they weren't flying uh, charter. They were flying commercial, so their flight, you know, they would have to go back to the hotel after a game on the road and fly out the next morning. So his rule was that you've got to be in the bar for a drink. You don't have to drink alcohol. You know, but you got to show up. And if, if you have a friend who's meeting you in town, that's fine. Bring him. But you got to be there. We're going to have, you know, spend some time together after the game. So he really just had a knack for building camaraderie. And anybody who's ever met him would tell you he's just a natural uh, person to do that. He is, um, he just has unbelievable people skills. You know, he's a guy who you cannot help but like. And uh, just a. Um, a really easy guy to be friends with. You know, I covered the team for the star for a dozen years and, of course, was around him a lot. And I wound up playing golf with him occasionally. We, we went to a funeral together, uh, that type of thing down in Louisville. And, you know, if you had told me as a little kid growing up here in Indianapolis that one day I'd be hanging out with Slick, <laughs> I would have thought you were crazy. But, you know, once you meet him, he's just a really easy guy to hang out with. So the players truly loved him they get mad at him at times of course uh but he had a knack for uh and i think most great coaches have this knack he had a knack for really getting on him pushing him making him do things they didn't want to do in practice but never uh alienating them you know or alienating himself from them um i you know i i was around purdue basketball a lot and gene katie's players used to say that he can chew your ass and make you like it and i think the same thing applies to slick leonard Before we continue the show, I want to tell you about a new HP Network podcast. You know that Nylon Calculus is the place to go for smart but accessible analysis of all things in the NBA. And now there's a new podcast called Nothing But Nylon. Hosted by Kevin Farrigan, it is a place where NBA writers and researchers discuss their ideas and talk hoops and analytics. Check it out at nylonCalculus.com and on the Harbor Paroxysm Podcast Network. So the uh, the Pacers in the '69 season they finished the season 42 and 27 after that two and seven start, and they meet the uh, Kentucky Colonels in the uh, in the Eastern semis. They're down three to one in that uh, in that series. It's not looking good. Um, did previously did a podcast with Bob Nedelicki, and he told me that the, the he later learned that the Pacers were perilously close to 
shutting down if they did not win this series that this was really important for them to you know get more money at the gate and to get the you know to get the fans rallied behind them this was also during a time in which uh i, I know in the second season in particular the, i think te- things were always kind of tenuous in the aba but especially in the second season i know there was a situation in houston where the money was pulled out of that team and that and that almost led to a situation where other owners were going to pull out so uh, obviously a very tenuous point in the league but the um the Pacers were able to uh, rally from three, from down three to one, to uh, win the series, um, and it also included a game two uh, that the actually the Pacers did win, and um, apparently had one of the wildest bla- brawls in uh, in ABA history. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say that Kentucky series was kind of a turning point for the franchise. That's when the fans really got on board and when the Pacers became a big deal in town coming back from three to one like they did and um, you know there were a lot of fights in those days and you know during the regular season and you know back in those days people need to realize you know you wouldn't necessarily get kicked out of a game if you got into a fight and there was a game where you know I mean Mel Daniels was always in the middle of these fights he wasn't the dirty player, but, you know, if it got too physical, he'd respond, or if a teammate needed to be defended, he'd be the guy to do it. He was, like I said, the heart and soul of those teams. And, uh, you know, there was a big fight in that series. I think the Colonels got a little bit cocky. You know, they got up 3-1, to one, and uh, one of their players, uh, I remember a quote in the newspaper, you know, said he had told their coach, Gene Rhodes, that, hey, you better take an extra – a suit or sport coat to Indianapolis for the next game because you're going to get thrown in the shower, you know, that type of thing, or you're going to get champagne all over it. And they were just assuming too much. And the Pacers came back from that three to one deficit and, uh, and wrapped it up. And, you know, they, and then they went and played uh, Miami next. And I think they won that one in five games. And to tell you how things were at that time, you know, the uh, Coliseum where the, Pacers played then the Fairgrounds Coliseum it wasn't always available because they had a boat sport and travel show at that time of year and of course they weren't used to having basketball games going on then so the Pacers actually played uh, one or two games in the playoffs that year in Anderson at the high school gym which had about 9,000 people and they also played one at Indiana Central a a small college on the south side of town that sat about 4,000 people so here you are playing playoff games you know, at a small college gym, 4,000 people, or even a high school gym, although I think they were able to extend the floor and make it, you know, the right length. But, you know, that's kind of how rinky-dink it was at the time. But they were able to um, come back and get to the finals that year against Oakland. And that was really when the Pacers caught on during that playoff uh, run that year. Yeah, and I know there was sort of an initial, you know, the the like the, the debut game of the, um, which was against the uh, Colonels in the, the, in the first season. You know, had a had a huge crowd, had like a huge overrun crowd, like thousands of people trying to get into the game. But once they started to not really be successful in the first year, the sort of the the crowds went away. But but they did kind of come back, obviously. Um, once they once they reached the finals and and made a run against the Oaks, they, the the Oaks were really a powerhouse team that year. They won sixty games. They had Larry Brown, Doug Moe, Warren Jabali, Rick Barry, also on the team, although he was injured uh, for most of the season, including the finals. So, and the guy the guy who was really 
the the spark of that series for Oakland was Warren Armstrong, who became yes. Warren Zabali. He was rookie of the year that year, and he was just a monster player, six two, six three, and really played a forward. He, he could jump so well, and so athletic. And uh, there was a key game in that series where uh, the Pacers actually won Game Two in Oakland. So they they come home tied one to one, and then Game Three at the Coliseum. Uh, they had uh, a lead, and Oakland had the ball out with just a few seconds to go. And uh, Slick Leonard had a – whenever he wanted an intentional foul, it was called yellow, yellow, yellow. And Tom Thacker was in the game and was supposed to foul uh, Jabali, or who really whoever was guarding the player who received the inbounds pass was supposed to foul immediately to put him on the foul line uh, because the Pacers were up three. And – Tom Thacker didn't get there in time. Jabali hit like a 35-footer with a few seconds to go. And uh, Thacker thought, oh, he's just too far away. I, I don't need to get out on him now. And lo and behold, Jabali hit it. He was Armstrong at the time, Warren Armstrong. That forced overtime. The Pacers were deflated. Oakland won that game. And then they really uh, they, they dominated game four. Then they went back to Oakland in the fifth game and won an overtime game. So... Um, it was a great series, but really Oakland had the best team. You know, Alex Hannum had won a championship with the Philadelphia 76ers. He's their coach. You got Larry Brown, who had been MVP of the first ABA All-Star game. Doug Moe was a, an accomplished player. Jabali. They didn't even need Rick Barry, who was the best player in the league. Uh, so that tells you how good they were. And in fact, you could argue they were maybe a little better without Barry because they, they actually liked playing without him because they all got to share the ball more. You know, Barry was such a dominant player that he was kind of difficult to play with because he takes so many shots. So I think the, that Oakland team took a lot of pride in winning without Rick Barry. Doug Moe was such a good defensive forward. Larry Brown was such a great passer, and Jabali you know, had so much talent um, that that was, that was a very well uh, put together team even without Barry. Um so 1970, the Pacers, um, 59 wins, which is first in the league. And uh, they add uh, Billy Keller, who was drafted out of Purdue. And interestingly enough, Keller was not really uh, that highly regarded by the team. He was more uh, a means to an end because they were looking to get the uh, uh, phenom Rick Mount, who was a Indiana high school uh, star, who was a great shooter, had been the first prep star to um, – be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and you know was um, obviously a, a hometown kid who everybody in the uh, in, everybody wanted to you know would be a, a great gate attraction for the Pacers. But it really worked out that Keller was uh, the a really key player for the uh, Pacers going forward, and then Mount ended up, of course, being a disappointment. Yeah, and I, I don't think they drafted Keller as a means to getting Rick Mount. I mean, they they got along, but they weren't really close. I don't believe. In okay. fact, I know. Uh, but again, they did get along certainly. But Keller was the seventh round draft pick of both the Pacers and uh, Milwaukee Bucks, and he t- he went up to Milwaukee and talked to them. But uh, you know Bob Collins, who was the sports editor of the Star at the time, and really the guy who kind of made the Pacer franchise happen. I mean, he was the guy who brought all the founders together. Um, he claims that he called Mike Storm, the GM, and said, "Hey, Mike, did I don't know if you knew this or not, but you're going to draft Billy Keller." And uh, Storm said, I don't know. He's awfully short. You know, I, I don't know about that. He's yeah, you're, you're going to draft Billy Keller. And they did draft him in the seventh round, but certainly no, not a lot of fanfare. No one gave him much hope of um, even making the team. But, you know, man, you know, Billy has told me, you know, 
he came into camp in shape because the summer after his senior year at Purdue, when they went to the final game of the NCAA championship, um, he played on a team that went overseas and he had been playing and practicing and came into camp in great shape. So when they ran sprints, he always won and he played well in inter-squad games and exhibition games. And then a, a guy named Bobby Joe Hooper who had been on the team the year before retired because of an injury. So a spot opened up. So it was really fluky for Billy Keller to be on that team. And he wound up having, I think, a seven-year career and was really a crucial player uh, on all those championship teams. He was one of only four guys. Uh, yeah, four guys who were on every championship team. They cruised through the um, through the pl- the first two rounds of playoffs pretty easily. They beat the uh, Carolina Cougars uh, four four zero, and then they beat the uh, Colonels uh, four games to one in the Eastern Finals. Um, so they they meet the uh, LA Stars, who were actually only a, a forty three win team, but were very well coached by uh, Bill Sharman. Had uh, Matt Calvin and Willie Weiss who had kind of come up as rookies and had been unheralded but had uh, had really been able to thrive uh, that year uh, also had uh, George Stone and uh, Mervyn Jackson as a couple other key players um, and the the Stars put up a tough fight but the Pacers were clearly the uh, better team and this was really a wonderful series for Roger Brown who um, scored 53 points in game four uh, 39 in game five and 45 in uh, game six uh, leading to uh, wins in game four and game six to uh, take the series um the uh the uh, pacers probably should have won game five at home but they uh, <laughs> there, there was uh, a couple of issues including uh, bob netalicki having a uh taking a water skiing trip or maybe a, a, a case of the uh, pacers maybe uh thinking that they had this in the bag a little bit too early though it ended up working out for them in the end he, he went water skiing the uh, day before and then day his arms the game and yeah. he he showed up uh, for a game you know sunburn and his arms and shoulders are sore from having water skied and he wound up uh hitting seven to 22 shots from the field <laughs> and shot air balls he did get like 18 rebounds he didn't have a bad game but you know seven to 22 from the field and really probably cost him the game but that was a classic case of too much assumption you know it was a nationally television the Pacers were up three to one. They had—I uh, wouldn't say they hadn't dominated the Stars, but they had uh, won Game Four by uh, twenty-two points. So they come home with their champagne on ice in the locker room, and you got national television, and everybody's assuming they're going to wrap up this championship at home. And you know, Neto goes water skiing, and Utah came out and played great. So they had to go back to Utah, excuse me, to LA, uh, LA Stars. They had to go back to LA and win it in game six. And of course, they're able to uh, do that uh, 111 to 107 to uh, win their first uh, ABA uh, title. Um, are there any, have you heard any, you know, particular stories about this series or anything that really uh, stands out to you or just like the feelings the players had, you know, f- finally winning that first championship? Yeah, it, you know, that was that series was all about Roger Brown. That was the peak of his career. You know, a guy who had been over in Dayton working in a General Motors factory, uh, just kind of getting by. His wife was a nurse, and they were doing okay, but he, um, you know, had been banned from basketball, and he really peaked during that series. I mean, he was just outstanding. And, 
you know, Roger Brown, a lot of people forget by the time the Pacers won their third title in 1973 was coming off the bench. You know, he just was breaking down physically and he, he wasn't the guy who worked out in the summer or really took care of his body. But in that series in 1970, he was just absolutely outstanding. And, uh, you know, uh, you could find clips of it here and there and they're worth looking up because he was really uh, a unique player. So graceful. Um, Nancy Leonard told me the story once that, um, uh, when they're out there for game six, you know, she was, had traveled with the team and she's standing in the tunnel where the players walk by to take the court, you know, nervous as could possibly be because they, you know, she had to be wondering if they just blown the series, but not winning that game back in Indianapolis. And she said, Roger Brown walked up to her and said, boy, you look scared to death. We don't have anything to worry about. And, and went out and they won the game afterward you know roger was not a, an emotional or demonstrative player by any means but uh, mel daniels told me once that the highlight of his playing career was back in the locker room after that game after winning that first championship in 1970 he's sitting in front of his locker and roger brown walked over and kissed him on the forehead and said can you believe we just won this championship you know and coming from roger uh, that was a lot. And, uh, you know, Mel just loved Roger like all the other guys did too. Roger was always kind of the cool guy in the room who could get by with less effort, just a very regal, graceful type of player. And, you know, Mel said that was the highlight of his career, Roger Brown responding that way to the championship. So we interrupt this great podcast that you're listening to. My name is Kevin Rayfuse. I'm Tim Tompkins. And I'm Justin Kuzart. And we host the Drive and Dish NBA podcast. We cover every team in the league and a bunch of really fun segments like random NBA player, drive and Dougal, and hot takes from Reddit. So when you're done listening to this podcast, give us a search on iTunes or whatever podcast streaming app you're listening on. We're also at driveanddishpodcast.com. We are the Drive and Dish NBA podcast. So moving on to uh, 1971, the uh, they're, they're great again in the regular season, uh, 58 wins. Uh, this is their best year in terms of um, a point differential. Um, they basketball references uh, simple rating system as 5.63, which is a second in the league and their highest mark of uh, any of those teams by quite a significant margin. Uh, they moved to the Western Division uh, that season with some uh, some teams moving and some some realignment of the ABA, and which was beneficial to them because they uh, could play Kentucky in the. Uh, um they they would if they were able to play them they would be playing them in the finals which worked out for um for them later on um that matchup actually happening um mike storen who was the uh, general manager of the uh, pacers moved on to become the kentucky president and uh, general manager I, I, is there a story behind why he moved on to that job or is uh, anything interesting behind that uh money you know he just got a great offer yeah. Uh, I don't know if he got a piece of ownership, but he just got a great financial offer. Mike was a good GM. I mean, he, looking back, you know, was maybe the perfect guy to get this thing off the ground. Extremely hard worker, a positive guy, but, you know, a disciplinarian. Guys who played for him will tell you he wasn't always the most honest guy in the world. You know, he would tell you things he was going to do and then not do them. But he still was really good at what he did, and he – knew to leave the coaches alone you know he didn't try to interfere with slick's coaching and when slick would call him at midnight from a bar and say we got to trade so and so storm would talk him off the ledge and say why don't we just talk about it tomorrow you know so he he was really good at handling things but he just got a great offer 
from the Colonel Storen's contract, original contract, paid him 20000 a year. So it wasn't all that difficult to beat his salary, I'm sure, for the Colonel owners, and it turned out well for them. And really, he and Dick Tinkham, Dick Tinkham is one of the Pacer founders, an attorney who had a, he and Storen had been in the Marines together, and Tinkham was the one responsible, responsible for getting Storen to Indianapolis in the first place to be GM of the Pacers. And once Storen went to Kentucky, Basically, he and Tinkham got together and arranged for the Pacers to go to the Western Division, so so they wouldn't have to play Kentucky before they got to the finals, you know. And they yeah. manipulated that pretty effectively. Yeah, they had Warren Jabali on the uh, team for uh, for this season. They also drafted um, Rick Mount. Rick Mount definitely seemed like someone who would be a natural for the ABA. He had the ability to shoot the three, had incredible range. Uh, unfortunately, was not a very good defensive player. Didn't really seem to fit in with uh, the team and with Slick Leonard's system in particular. No, it uh, wrong place, wrong time. And Slick did not want him in the first place. You know, they the Pacers had uh, to tell you how big Rick Mount was here. I mean, he had been Mr. Basketball, like you said, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1966, an All American at Purdue, the Big Ten's all time leading scorer, hugely popular in Indiana. So. You know, for the Pacers to have won the title on 70 and then to add Rick Mount, it just seemed too good to be true. And they had a live televised press conference to announce the signing where he actually did sign his contract there. But uh, Slick was not there. And, and that was very telling. Slick did not show up for that. And he didn't want him. Uh, he was kind of forced on him. Mount was forced on Slick. And it, it's unfortunate. I think, you know, if Slick were really honest with you right now, he would tell you he made some mistakes with Rick uh, and could do things differently than an, another time around. But, you know, as a rookie, Rick really wasn't very effective. He wasn't an athletic guy. He was a great shooter. He had a quick first step and could get a shot off. But uh, on the pro level, he really wasn't athletic enough to um, be an effective player, although later in his career with other teams, he was pretty good. But he wasn't a factor on that first pacer team. But you know, uh, Billy Keller was in his second year and was playing well. And as you said, Jabali is on this team. Uh, you still got Freddie Lewis, Roger Brown, Mel Daniels, Bob Nedeligi. Uh That was the team that really kind of blew it. Uh, I mean, they had the best team in the league. And players will tell you uh, privately, I guess, that um, they think Slick made some mistakes. You know, Slick started messing around with the starting lineup in the playoffs he would say for matchups, he was starting Billy Keller and Jabali in the backcourt in the playoffs and bringing Freddie Lewis off the bench. Some players have told me that Slick thought that the players were starting to follow Lewis's lead more than Slick's lead and that uh, he needed to kind of keep Freddie in his place and uh, reassert his authority, and he was bringing Freddie off the bench. There may be more to it than that. Maybe Freddie was you know, guilty of uh, trying to do too much or be too much of a leader, but... Uh, there were some issues there within the team, and uh, they lost that series to Utah. Freddie Lewis says after they lost the last game of that series, which uh, was a home game, that he um, went to a park, sat under a tree, and cried, you know, because he was just so disappointed and he knew they had blown an opportunity. So, you know, this team easily could have won four titles it could have won four in a row you know they were that good but they let that one get away in 71 
for whatever reason, whether it was players, you know, losing their focus and intensity or whether it was Slick Leonard, you know, um, messing around with the lineup. Uh, I know in the last game, the one they lost at home to close out the series, players said that he um, changed strategy at halftime and, and told them to slow things down. And they felt like that cost him, but uh, they let that one get away. Mm-hmm. I know that the, um, the the rivalry between Zemo Beatty and, um, and, and Mel Daniels was interesting. I, I know that I've read that Zelmo is a guy that was able to kind of um, – I had had so much craft and you know was not afraid to uh, do things like uh, you know hold a guy's thigh or you know, <laughs> do do things to get kind of under a player's skin and that was something that uh, Beatty was one of the few players that you know kind of was able to get to Daniels in that way. Yeah, just a lot of savvy, you know, really experienced. He'd been in the NBA for a number of years. He was at the end of his career at this point and was not as athletic as Mel Daniels, but. Like you said, he knew all the tricks, you know, knew he could get away with holding you here and there and keeping you from jumping, that type of thing. And, you know, he wasn't the star of that team necessarily, but he was just a really effective uh, player. And and Utah just had a really balanced team, you know, Red Robbins and like you said, Merv Jackson and Willie Wise and guys like that. And uh, that last game where they closed it out, they shot this an unbelievable percentage, you know, in that second half and kind of took it away from the Pacers. The Pacers um, led by seven at halftime and gave up 41 points in the third quarter because Utah hit 17 to 23 shots. So, you know, you got to give the Stars credit. Sure, absolutely. And and they were a really good team as well who, you know, ran into the Pacers a lot as, as we'll talk about it here. And, and usually the Pacers came up on the winning end of that, although in this case, obviously the Stars uh, didn't end up winning the championship. So not really much shame there. I mean, Utah was a really good team too. Even if the Pacers should have won, it was a, a, a matchup of very close teams. And I would say that there really were not that many instances where the Pacers, you know, when they lost in the playoffs, they they generally lost to a clearly worse team, uh, or excuse me, a clearly better team. This is one of the few times where, you know, they lost to a, you know, an equal or maybe even slightly lesser opponent, depending on your, you know, on your point of view. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, uh, they weren't a lot better than Utah, but they were better. And they just didn't have that chemistry, you know. I don't know what impact Jabali had. He was really militant in those days, and I don't. The players were actually kind of afraid of him. <laughs> you know, he was not a guy you wanted to make angry. You know, I mean, a Jabali story. He uh, one time in the locker room after a practice, uh, one of his teammates, you know, was wearing the tidy whitey cotton underwear, and Jabali just reached over and ripped him off of him and said, "You know, my ancestors picked that cotton. You know, you don't be wearing those. That type of thing." I mean, he was just that kind of guy at the time. And he had had a, a, a knee injury and wasn't as good as he had been as a rookie with Oakland. So he really didn't help him that much. You know, Billy Keller had 33 points in the last game of that series against Utah when the Pacers went down. Um, but uh, it just wasn't enough. So uh, the chemistry just wasn't the same, and Jabali was gone the next year. Yeah. Um, but they added that the next year, uh, two key pieces. One, of course, uh, George McGinnis. Um, who came from um, Indiana University and uh, was really probably the, 
the the second major uh, hardship star to come out early from college um, after Spencer Haywood. And I, I read that it was very tricky to sort of woo him, woo him from Indiana because of the the perception that they wanted to avoid that the pro team was trying to you know to take the you know the the, the popular college star away from the you know very popular university in the state. Yeah, it was you know, and they kind of finessed it. Uh, there were during that uh, seventy one playoff series, uh, there were articles in the paper, you know, rumors of George McGinnis signing, and then I think it was during that series that he he it actually became official that he was going to join him. You know, George was so advanced physically that college ball wasn't that big of a challenge to him, and you know, like he told me years ago that, uh, you know, I didn't go to college to be a lawyer or a doctor. I wanted to be a basketball player and I had the opportunity at that point to become a basketball player. And, um, the, the story behind that is his father had been killed in a construction accident the summer after his senior year in high school. And so his mom, you know, I don't think she was working at the time. So he needed to support her financially. So he had a huge incentive to get into the professional basketball ranks as quickly as possible. The Pacers were happy to give him that opportunity. <laughs> and uh, so he was quick to jump on board. Yeah. And he, I mean, he, I mean, we, it was just obviously this big, strong uh, strapping guy, great scorer, a great rebounder, also a, um, a, a, you know, could play the point forward, could handle the ball. Just, he was really a jack of all trades and obviously really helped, um, the Pacers uh, sustain that the, the run through the through the next uh, you know three or four years. No question. I mean, just uh, an incredible physical specimen, and uh, his nickname was the Baby Bull. He was reckless in those early years, really throughout his career, but especially in those early years. And he turned the ball over a lot. Had a you know one handed shot that looked bad, uh, but occasionally he'd hit it just often enough to keep his hopes up. But he was just so physical around the basket and so quick and could take the ball to the basket and and I really don't know who to compare him to but the I mean some people would say LeBron James but uh, you know I'm not going to put him in LeBron's category but he was just um, way ahead of his time physically and a really good guy I mean he was um, even though he was a huge local star celebrity you know he fit in with the guys really well and, uh, you know, basically replaced Bob Nettelicke in the starting lineup, which, you know, made Neto unhappy. But uh, it was an obvious thing to do. He was so advanced physically and, and was a huge part of the of two of those championships. Mm -hmm. And then the other guy, uh, Darnell Hillman, who uh, was uh, well known for his dunking ability and his leaping and his great defense and perhaps uh, even more so his incredible afro. Yeah. You know, Darnell, was, he's unusual. You know, most guys that tall, and he's like 6'9", aren't great leapers. But Darnell was a 7-foot high jumper in college at San Jose State. And so you're talking about a guy 6'9", who could jump out of the gym and had the huge afro on top of it, which made it look, you know, like he was getting that much higher. And, yeah, just a colorful player. You know, Darnell is a really good guy. He still works for the Pacers in their front office. I give him a lot of credit because he's got – a job in the marketing department, community relations. He sits at a desk every day and in his cubicle and grinds it out with everybody else. You know, a lot of former uh, athletes would not 
be able to do that kind of job. Their ego would be too big or they would just be too restless or whatever to have a so-called desk job, although Darnell certainly gets out in the community a lot and does clinics. But, you know, just a really good guy, and he's now really the link between the ABA people who are still here in town and the current Pacer organization. So, yeah, he was a um, – he and George McGinnis were great friends. They even opened up an appliance store together at one time. And uh, everybody loved to see Darnell dunk. In later years, he would win uh, an NBA slam dunk championship, but it was before they did it the way they do it now. So he doesn't go down officially as a slam dunk champion, but he did win a slam dunk competition that the NBA held uh, before they went to their current format. And um, just a combination of his size, jumping ability, and afro made him a really colorful player. Yeah, there's a incredible uh, YouTube clip of him um, dunking over Artis Gilmore. That is just a a, a, a wow moment in um, uh, my my friend Lamar Maddock who, on his YouTube channel. I'll, I'll for listeners, I'll include it in the show notes. But it's just I'm sure there's other highlights as well. But that one just stands out as a as incredible to see so he was a uh, uh, from what i you know from what i heard otherwise yeah he's he's a really interesting guy and he, he seems like a uh, definitely a fun guy um so the team they were 47 wins uh, that season a little bit less of a regular season team but they um were able to they 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 battled through the playoffs. They um, had a hard, rough time with a 34-win uh, Rockets team in the West semifinals that were led by uh, Ralph Simpson, Byron Beck, Dave Robish, and Larry Brown at the end of his career. Uh, and then they uh, then they matched up against the Stars again, who were even better regular season team with 60 wins, and it added Jimmy Jones, who was a six-time All Star in the league. Uh, but they Got past them uh, four to three as well, and then um, and, and then met the uh, Nets in the uh, finals, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, that that star series, as far as um, you know, the, the Pacers, um, you know, w- w- was I'm sure there had to be at least some you know extra inspiration to beat them after they had thwarted their chance at a championship the year before. Yeah, yeah, that was, you know, a a great series, and I'm sure there was a lot of motivation there. The Pacers actually had to come back from being down 2-0 and 3-2 in that series, and they wrapped up that series in Salt Lake City, uh, 117-113. And, um, you know, Freddie Lewis was huge in that game, and uh, he had 23 points, 12 rebounds, 6 assists in that game, and was really kind of the key behind it. And uh, just an emotional lift, you know, to be able to advance over the team that had defeated you the previous year. And um, and we'll talk about that net series, but there's behind the scenes here, there's some unhappy players. And it's kind of funny how the Pacers were able to come together and win a title with some guys who really wanted out of there. But, you know, they they came through in that Utah series. And, uh, you know, Rick Mount you know, was pretty effective throughout that series. I mean, I think he had uh, 10 points in that closeout game in Utah off the bench and, and made real contributions. So they were able to come together on the floor, even though there was trouble brewing behind the scenes. So the, so the finals, well, it, it, expand upon that, if you don't mind, before we get into the actual uh, final series. Cause I, yeah, I, I, well, actually, you had two players on that team, Rick Mount and Bob Nedelicki, who were either had already demanded a trade or going to. Okay. and. Uh, Mounts came out uh, in New York when they were in New York during the series. One of the New York papers 
uh, reporters got a hold of him, and you know, Mount said he was going to ask for a trade. Rick has told me he asked for it officially on the plane ride home. <laughs> and <laughs> if you um, there's, you know, you could probably see it on YouTube, a clip of them celebrating in the locker room after the game, you know, pouring champagne on each other. And Rick's there, looks kind of happy, but you can just tell he's not really part of it. You know that he's just, you know, he's not one of the guys. And you know, the, the guys liked Rick. Um, you know, he's a very likable guy, but he's introverted and pretty quiet and kind of keeps to himself. And so never really connected with his teammates. And then of course, the fact he was so unhappy and, you know, some of the players sympathized with him, thought he should have been playing more, thought he was getting a raw deal. In fact, during that season, um, there had been a story in the star. And I would say to this day, the most dramatic sports headline in the history of the Indianapolis star, a banner headline on, on, on a Sunday morning, uh, which read Mount fed up with Leonard's excuses. <laughs> it was Rick Mount complaining about his playing time. There was uh, an anonymous player quoted sticking up for Mount that turned out to be Mel Daniels. Um, and it really created a stir and Rick had probably gotten a raw deal to that point. There had been a game in Pittsburgh where he had played really well the first half. And I think, you know, either missed a couple shots or had a turnover early in the second half and then was benched for almost the rest of the game, that type of thing. And there was really some doubts about the way Slick was handling Rick Mount because he was playing better and he was having some big games. But uh, he wanted out and Neto wanted out because he had lost his uh, starting position to George McGinnis. And I never saw anything in the local papers, but I just recently found a story in the Des Moines, Iowa paper. And that's where Neto went to college at Drake, uh, where he told a reporter there that he was fed up and ready to move on. So you have two key players who are, who are wanting trades on a team that's on its way to winning a championship. So it was an, uh, an unusual situation. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, there's sometimes a difference between the chemistry that goes on on the court and the chemistry that's kind of going on behind the scenes. That They, they obviously can be related, but they're not necessarily always related. So, yeah. So the finals are they, they they battled the New York Nets, who were a 44-win team. They had upset a 68-win Kentucky Tr Colonels team that year. They had were led by Rick Barry, also had Bill Melchione, uh, Billy Paltz. And um, this is really a, a lot of storylines this series, but obviously, you know, Roger Brown versus Rick Barry being two of the great uh, small forwards in the league of that time, probably, the, you know, it's two of the um, – uh, two of the best in the league during that time. And um, this probably is about this point where Brown is, you know, he's getting to be 28, 29. So he's getting, he's a bit older at this point. Um, so maybe not quite at his peak, but still a, you know, a kind of a great back and forth uh, between them uh, throughout the series. Yeah, no question. I mean, Barry was the better player during that series, but not by a lot. And like you say, Roger Brown is actually past his prime at this point. You got to keep in mind, you know, yeah, he's in his late 20s, but all you know, most of his miles had come on asphalt. You know, in, in high school playgrounds around the New York area, and then when he was living in Dayton, you know, having been banned from the NCAA after his freshman year there, he was playing summer games and parks, and you know, a lot of pickup games on asphalt. So his knees, you know, legs were pretty beat up by the time he got into the ABA. So by 1972, here. You know, uh, he is really past his prime. In fact, 72 was his last year as a full-time starter. So he still had a good series, though, made a lot of key plays. Um, you know, Rick Barry 
was, you know, the better player in that series. Really, that 72 series was more about Freddie Lewis. Um, you know, Freddie was the MVP of that series. I would contend, you know, maybe the most underrated pacer ever, even though he's recognized as a really good player. But, you know, this was Freddie um, Lewis, the series. You know, he had a game in, like, game three, the uh, Pacers won it out in New York. Uh, despite the fact Rick Barry had 44 points, for example. You know, Barry took 35 shots in that game, hit 18, uh, but the Pacers won it because they had better balance. And, uh, you know, guys like, you know, McGinnis and Brown had big games and, you know, Lewis, that type of thing. So the Pacers just had better balance than that's, and it, which meant they had enough to overcome Rick Barry. Yeah. And uh, I, game five seems like a particular highlight because uh, the Pacers were down early 40 to 20 and uh, Billy Keller helped spark a rally with three straight three pointers and they were able to tie the game at 60 and um, the but the Nets sort of battled back and had a, a four point lead with 27 seconds left. And then, um, and then Keller hit another big three pointer and Freddie Lewis uh, came up with a, a big defensive play to help uh, uh, save the series. Yes, he did. You know, Freddie Lewis was, uh, let's see, I'm looking at the box score now. He finished with 22 points in that game. Keller also had 22 off the bench. You know, we were talking about Rick Mount. Rick Mount started most games in that series, but Slick would kind of start him to try to keep him happy. But, you know, he really didn't get starter minutes. And Billy Keller would come off the bench and play at least as many minutes, if not more, than Mount. And in that particular game was outstanding. And, uh, yeah, Lewis had let's see i'm looking at the story actually the pacers win that game 199 and he had you know back in those days they had three to hit two free throw opportunities and um you know he hit a couple uh that really accounted for the final score uh, when the pacers were down but he had helped set that up with a key steal and like you say billy keller's three pointers were the um were the difference in that game. So Rick Barry also had a key turnover in that game where they threw him an inbounds pass, and he kind of looked away, and the ball went right through his hands. And that was, I believe, on like the Nets' final possession or one of the final possessions where they could have won the game, but uh, uh, the Pacers got a break there because Barry mishandled an inbounds pass, and uh, they had a key turnover. Yeah, and then the uh, and then the Pacers were able to win the championship in Game Six in New York, one hundred eight to one hundred five. Um, so, so you mentioned Fred Lewis; he was a guy we didn't, I didn't get a chance to get um, into very much with with Neto. But you talked about kind of you know his leadership, you know how, what the importance that he brought to the team. Is there anything else that really stands out to you about him? Well, he was just a good all-around player. You know, he he could score. I mean, he would have games over 40 points occasionally. He was an aggressive defender, strong, um, clutch player. You know, he wasn't afraid of the moment ever. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I don't know him really well, but certainly have talked to him a lot over the years, and I have seen him watching practice before. And even as he's watching practice, he's like a coach, you know, shouting instructions. He's just... Uh, that guy, he was basically the captain of every team he ever played on. Uh, once he um, actually probably at every level. I know the very, let's see, the second year of the Pacer franchise, he wasn't a captain at the beginning of the season. But once Jerry Harkness um, uh, had to retire from injuries, Freddie became captain of that team, too. And from that point forward was always a captain, not only of the Pacers, but of Memphis and St. Louis when he played there as well. So he was just a natural leader who could rally the guys, 
you know, I've heard stories where, um, like in the summer, these guys didn't really work out in the summers like the guys do now, or, but they might get together and play a pickup game or whatever. And I'd hear a story where Freddie would say, come on, let's go do this or whatever, or maybe, you know, maybe run a drill or let's go. And, and Roger Brown would go up and sit down and light up a cigarette and say, man, you're not the coach <laughs> that type of thing. So that tells you, uh, you know, that Freddie was a guy trying to get Roger Brown going and uh but had huge moments you know he was mvp of the 72 series i think his numbers should be retired by the pacers and i've written that and i've talked to people about it um and it's not i don't have a personal um uh role in this you know like i say you know it's not like freddie and i are great friends but i just think it's an injustice he's the starting point guard and captain of three championship teams he was the mvp of the finals in 1972 could have been MVP of the finals in 73, but got injured in game seven, and George McGinnis kind of closed out that series, so he got MVP. He was MVP of the All-Star game one year in St. Louis. I mean, I just don't see any good reason why his jersey should not be retired. I think I can make an argument that Freddie Lewis is more deserving of a retired jersey number than Roger Brown. I mean, Roger Brown didn't do anything that Freddie Lewis didn't do. Roger was MVP of the 70 finals, Freddie in 72. They both made, you know, four or five all-star games. Uh, Freddie was MVP of one of those games. And like I said, Freddie was the captain who tried to rally other guys, and Roger was the guy who needed the kick in the behind. So um, that series in 72 was certainly the peak moment for Freddie. And remember, you know, we had just talked about how in 71 he had been left out of the starting lineup and how he had gone to a park and sat under a tree and cried, you know, when the Pacers got closed out by uh, Utah in 71. So, 72 was kind of a redemption for Freddie Lewis. Um, so before we get into 73, there's one thing I wanted to ask about. So I, I know that um, Mel Daniels had very much a, a uh, kind of a cowboy identity that I guess he had sort of garnered when he was went to college in New Mexico. And that sort of sp- he had a ranch in Indiana and liked to do a lot of horse riding and, and stuff. And um, and I read in Loose Balls about how the sort of the cowboy thing spread to sort of the other players and they would all kind of ride horses together on the ranch and then they would carry guns and sometimes the guns would be um, in the locker room and that sort of caused a few uh, nervous feelings of you know of, of guys having guns in the locker room. Um, please explain if you can. <laughs> yeah, it, it started with Mel. Um, Mel grew up in Detroit, but his mother, I think, had um, you know some roots to the Southwest and, and liked the cowboy thing. Mel's wife, Cece, was from, he met her at New Mexico. And you know, I think she's got some Indian blood in her heritage. And Mel just fell in love with the Southwest when he went to um, uh, college in New Mexico and got into the cowboy thing. So once he got to the Pacers and and got some money, he bought acreage north of town and added to it over the years. I think, you know, wound up owning about 80 acres of land. His wife, Cece, still has it. He had horses. I mean, he would raise horses for other people. He was a genuine cowboy. He would ride horses like in barrel racing type of things. Um, it wasn't just a little fantasy for him or a little game he played. I mean, he absolutely loved it. And uh, to tell you something about Mel, you know, his how good-hearted he was. You know, when a horse dies, you're not supposed to bury it. You know, you they are rendered. They're basically turned into glue. You know, they are taken to a factory and rendered. Mel did not have the heart to see that happen to his horses, so he would bury his horses on his property, you know, with a backhoe. 
And um, I think it's safe to tell that story now that Mel's gone. But um, that, to me, says something about Mel Daniels. And he, that caught on, you know. I mean, Roger Brown, uh, his second wife, Jeannie, <clears throat> still lives in the house they shared together. They have a big backyard, but it's hardly a ranch. But they had a horse for a while, uh, you know. And Slick Leonard had a summer camp, a boys camp that he had for a few years and the the Pacer players would participate in that. And they'd have horses out there and they Mel tells the story one time, like three or four of them rode into town in Columbus, Indiana, you know, <laughs> and on horseback, you know, like it was the old West or something. And, uh, you know, what it tells you about the camaraderie, you know, one guy to get a horse, two or three other guys to get a horse, one guy to get a motorcycle and two or three other guys to get a motorcycle. And they'd be riding those around town. So, um, that's that particular aspect of it started with Mel and it kind of reflects that the, the camaraderie those guys have. And of course, if you're going to be a cowboy, you got to have guns too, right? So, sure. <laughs> you know, Mel and Roger would carry, uh, guns. Roger actually became a, a deputized sheriff. Um, but yeah, they would be drawing on each other in a locker room before a game, just clowning around. And supposedly one time a gun went off and shot a hole in the ceiling. (laughs) So if you could imagine if that happened today, if a player shot off a gun in the locker room before a game, my goodness, he'd be suspended for life, you know, or for a year at least. And it'd just be a huge story, but that's the kind of thing that happened back then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the ABA was kind of the wild West a lot in a lot of ways in basketball. So it only appropriate for there to be the, uh, the Cowboys as well. Yep. Um, So the 73 season, the uh, Pacers win 51 games. Um, uh, As you mentioned, uh, or as you alluded to, Bob Nedelicki was traded to Dallas and uh, Rick Mount traded to Kentucky. Uh, They also added former all-star Donnie Freeman to the uh, team and uh, rookie Don Don Busey was also added to the uh, team. Um, uh, it seems like McGinnis really um, took an even greater hold as far as um, you know be, being the uh, team leader, averaging uh, twenty seven point six points, twelve point five rebounds that season. Um, you know, sort of leading the uh, uh, sort, sort of you know the the team kind of being centered around him i mean obviously the other players were still you know daniels and lewis and hillman and roger roger brown even though he's coming off the bench so those are still key contributors but it's definitely more it seems like it's becoming more mcginnis's team um yeah was that a was, was that i mean they were obviously successful they won championships you know they won another championship and then and had another finals appearance uh did that work pretty well on the court as far as where you know where the other guys was a resentment over that or was that pretty well accepted or how did that sort of work as far as um both on and off the court i think it was accepted i think the players realized that they needed that you know i don't think they could have won without george taking over he led the team in scoring that year over 27 points a game and uh you know mel daniels was second at 18 Uh, again we talked about how roger brown by that third championship season in 73 he only started a little less than half the games 38 of the 72 games in which he played and he only averaged uh 12.6 points a game so rogers on his way out netalicki's gone it's got to be george mcginnis's team by that point so you've still got mel there you've got freddie lewis uh you mentioned donnie freeman who averaged 14 points a game that year you got darnell hillman playing a lot that year uh, and some other key reserves but they needed George McGinnis to take over that team. There's no question about it. And like I said, he averaged 27.6 points a game and, and it didn't lead the team in rebounds, but had over a thousand rebounds and, uh, was no, no, no doubt about it. He was the, uh, the impetus of that team. Yeah. 
Um, so they they beat Denver in the West semis, and they beat uh, Utah again in the uh, West finals. Um, Utah by fifty seven wins, another another uh, collision of powerhouses. Uh, and then they meet the uh, Kentucky Colonels in the uh, ABA Finals. Uh, uh, Mike Storn and, and Dick Tickle's plan uh, came to fruition. They, the two teams met <laughs> in the uh, finals. Uh, the Colonels at this point, uh, they, uh, they've they had uh, Louis Dampier and Dan Issel and have added uh, Artis Gilmore and, of course, now have Rick Mount, who was traded there um, before the season. And um, this is quite a you know, seven-game final uh quite a classic between these two teams um the, the, obviously with the proximity of uh louisville and indianapolis that they're that added sort of a special uh rivalry to this team um what was that uh you, you know what was kind of that rivalry like well it was great you know the teams are two hours apart they call it the i-65 series you just head down interstate 65 between indianapolis and louisville you know, and the teams would bus back and forth. No need to fly to those games. You know, you bus back and forth. Fans from Indiana were able to, you know, go to those games and vice versa. Kentucky fans could come up here. And uh, it was just a combination of the geographic proximity. There was already an Indiana-Kentucky rivalry because uh, an all-star game, high school all-star game, had been played between Indiana and Kentucky you know, going back to uh, to uh, the 1940s, you know. So Indiana-Kentucky was just a natural rivalry. Of course, at that time, Kentucky had great high school basketball. It really doesn't now, but it did then. And it was, you know, always debate about which state was the best basketball state. And, of course, you had all the success the University of Kentucky had. So it was just natural that Indiana-Kentucky were going to have great rivalries. Um, you know, Kentucky got into the ABA kind of at the last minute that first year and uh, they had to agree that they would play never play a home game in the state of indiana to get into the league that was something the pacer owners insisted on um so it was kind of i mean the the very first pacer game was played against kentucky and it was just a natural rivalry and with that playoff series we talked about in 1969 when the pacers came back from three to one the games were heated there were often fights you had louis dampier who's from indianapolis Playing for the Colonels, then you add Rick Mount to that roster in '73. I mean, uh, it just all heated up. It was just fantastic. Of course, you know Bobby Leonard would just—he would um, fuel the fire for these kind of things. You know, he'd say things in the paper, and he would just pour gasoline on the fire <laughs> to make it that much more emotional. So, yeah, it was just a fantastic rivalry. Yeah. And uh, any are there any particular you know moments or games that stand out in this series to you? Well, in one of the games, you had a fight between Donnie Freeman and Rick Mount. In that game, you know things just got a little too physical, and they went at it. You know that that series though really, uh, you know the weird thing about the Pacer championships is that all three were clinched on the road. Yeah, you know, they I didn't just win. noticed that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have that game six in 1970 after Neto went water skiing that they had to go back out there and win it. They beat New York in New York in 72, and they had to go down to Kentucky and win game seven in 73. In that series, the visiting team won one, two, three, four, five times out of a seven-game series. You know, the visiting team won seven, uh, five games. You know, we always talk, even today, you know, when I'm writing about NBA playoffs, and they always talk about uh, how important it is to get home court advantage 
in my mind, I'm thinking, really? You know, because, you know, the Pacer history is that their best playoff moments come on the road. You know, three ABA championships, all those Reggie Miller moments in Madison Square Garden. I mean, the best Pacer playoff moments by far have come on the road. Yeah. So I'm not sure how important it is. I think a lot of times there's a special kind of pressure on the home team, uh, particularly when you're in a closeout game because there's so much anticipation. The Pacers could have closed out series at home uh, in game six and lost it 109-93. to 93. So they had to go down and win it in game seven. And uh, Freddie Lewis got injured in that game and had to leave the game. So Billy Keller got an opportunity to close out the game. Uh, it was a, kind of an ugly game. 88-81 to 81 was the final score. And, you know, George McGinnis really made the difference in that game. Roger Brown came off the bench and scored uh, 10 points, I believe. Because, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about a Kentucky team with Artis Gilmore and Dan Issel. Yeah. Louis Dampier, you know, Rick Mount. Uh, a really strong team. But um, George McGinnis kind of made the difference down the stretch. 88-81. Uh, and uh, McGinnis had 27 points hit 11 to 21 shots. You know, both teams shot poorly and um, didn't even really, well, the Pacers got to the foul line more often. Uh, like I said, Freddie Lewis had to leave the game early with injuries, but, um, you know, George McGinnis made the difference in that game and got MVP of that series. Yeah, and uh, Gus Johnson, who would had been signed with the yeah. uh, Pacers during that season, had a, a pretty key role in uh, defending um, Artis Gilmore. Gus Johnson was six uh, six, and Gilmore was seven two. But uh, Johnson was sort of strong enough to be able to sort of hold his own uh, against Artis. You know, not being able to push him around just because of how strong he was, and uh, able to kind of contain him when uh, Mel Daniels was in foul trouble. Yeah, good point. I mean, Gus was really crucial, and he was an NBA veteran who was kind of literally on his last legs. You know, he wasn't nearly the athlete he had been with the Baltimore Bullets, but was just a savvy player and brought a, a, an element of leadership to that game, there were, to that series. There was one game in that series where Slick got kicked out and Gus took over as the coach. And um, the players had a lot of respect for him. I asked David Craig, the guy who was the Pacer trainer in those ABA years, he was their trainer for 35 years. You know, I asked him once, like, which player that you've worked with played with the most pain and he said Gus Johnson uh this his knees were just shot and uh he was still able to contribute something just with his savvy you know in that final game where the Pacers closed out the series he played 13 minutes he had seven rebounds you know had three points so probably made some defensive plays too that kind of thing so um you know Roger Brown like I said by that time was coming off the bench he still was a clutch player and contributed Darnell Hillman was key in that series. He started really most games of that series, had 13 rebounds in that game seven win. So, uh, but Gus Johnson, you know, certainly deserves to mention here. He was, uh, you know, the Pacers had a knack, whether it was Slick or GM, for bringing in a guy, you know, who had a lot of experience who could help him out. It was Tom Thacker in 1970, an NBA veteran. Tom Thacker still goes to Pacer games, drives up from Cincinnati. He had Johnny Barnhill for a couple of years as well. And then in 73 here, you have Gus Johnson. So, you know, these guys were way past their prime, but just because of their experience and knowledge, were able to make key contributions off the bench. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, we've been talking mostly about the, uh, you know, the, the, the top key star players, the heavy men's players, but everyone uh, plays a role. Um uh, so the 1974 season, uh, the uh, Pacers win 46 games, which is fifth in the league, 
And um, this is basically the last, well, really is the last season with the core players of um, Roger Brown, Freddie Lewis, and Mel Daniels. Also, uh, Bob Nedelicki back on the team from the Spurs, which actually leads to a funny situation where um, in uh, early in the season where he um, there, there, he was playing for the Spurs when they lost at home to the Pacers in the last second shot. Then the Spurs protested, and then they reordered the uh, ordered a replay of the game. But at that point, uh, Nedelicki was on the uh, Pacers, so he uh, uh, played for the final thirty seconds of regulation for the Pacers plus the subsequent overtime. So he played for both te- essentially both teams in the uh, same game. Which uh, yeah, o- only Neto could pull that off, right? Yes, I mean, yeah, that's, that's exactly. Right there. <laughs> yes. So um, a. Um, so this is obviously the last hurrah for the core of this team. It, do, do you think that was something that was was fairly well known? Like this is probably going to be the last shot with these guys, or was that not really something that um, you you think would have been realized? You know, at, at that time. Yeah, I don't think during the season people necessarily looked at it that way, but internally things were kind of coming apart. You know, you're talking about a team that's won three championships. Human nature, you know will tell you that people start letting up and they get distracted. I mean, guys were go, had gone through divorces. You know, I think stardom got to a few of their heads. Uh, you got guys getting divorced. Uh, they're making more money, uh, driving better cars. They just lost some of their hunger, you know, and they were still a talented team. They won 46 games during the regular season, 46 and 38. Uh, but, you know, Roger Brown is certainly in decline. He averaged Little, little under 12 points that 73-74 season. Um, and, you know, Nedelik, he comes back for part of it. But, you know, Mel Daniels isn't quite the player he had been in the past. And Donnie Freeman, for whatever reason, wasn't particularly happy. I don't think he was happy with his role. Uh, George McGinnis, again, is dominating this team. So things were just kind of coming apart, a combination of guys getting older and guys getting softer. You know, you've, you've – You've won three championships. There's a lot of satisfaction and a lot of distractions going on. And at, after the season was over, Slick Leonard was quoted in newspapers as talking about how difficult a season it had been for him. Yeah. Um, so speaking of McGinnis continuing to dominate, he, um, in, in a game against Carolina in January of 74, he had 52 points and 37 rebounds, which is a team record in uh, one game, which is uh, obviously quite an impressive mark. I think actually, uh, I bet if you went back and looked, I'm pretty sure that was a game where he was like missing shots on purpose to get offensive rebounds. Oh. <laughs> offensive rebounds a couple of, of those rebounding totals. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, Moses Malone made a career of that, so you know we'll yes. uh, we'll, we'll give it to him there. <laughs> in the uh, playoffs in the West semifinals, they uh, beat the Spurs. Um, 40, four, four games to three in the West semifinals. The Spurs had George Gervin, James Silas, uh, Rich Jones, and Sven Nader. I believe this was the first year for the Spurs in San Antonio. Um, and, um, and they were sort of a young and up-and-coming team on the rise with Gervin, you know, becoming a, a superstar. And uh, then they lost to the uh, old friends, the Utah Stars, 51-win uh, team, four games to three in the West Finals. This would be the, the fifth straight year they were their playoff nemesis. And the Pacers actually were, were down 3-0 in the series, and they were able to come back and you know win the next three games, but then they fell in, um, in Game 7 in Utah. Yeah, kind of a last gasp effort. You know, they did. They won three games in a row after being down 3-1, and... Uh, just didn't have enough. You know, that last 
game. They wound up losing it uh, 109 to 87. So they here they came back to tie the series and go to a seventh game out in Utah, but got blown out. You know, they just didn't have anything left. They got beat uh, by 22 points. Uh, you know, George McGinnis is 3-12 for the field. Mel Daniels scores six points. Uh, you know, Freddie Lewis had 11. You know, Roger Brown, kind of his last good moment as a pacer, had 21 points off the bench, but just nothing left. You know, uh, now Rick Mount by now is on Utah's team, and he's <laughs> he gets the enjoyment of that victory, but yes. – uh, it was just kind of, they just ran out of gas, I guess. You know, they, they rallied, they tried. I think they felt like they could turn it on whenever they wanted to, having won three titles, and they got, you know, uh, pretty soft, and they turned it on there at the very end, uh, but just had nothing left for that last game. And this ended a, a playoff rivalry with the Stars that produced three series of seven games and two series of uh, six games. Um, anything stand out to you that we haven't talked about as far as that playoff rivalry goes? Any any personality conflicts or any any moments that we didn't touch on? With Utah? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, not really. Not that I could think of. Um, they had great – boy, they had great – series with Utah, the regular season games with Utah were great. Um, you know, Bill Sharman was an outstanding coach and he went on later to coach the Lakers to their, you know, championship season and where they set a record for consecutive victories. Uh, so, you know, you got to give Utah a lot of credit. Uh, you didn't have the drama, I guess, that you had against Kentucky. You didn't have as many fights. Uh, they were just really well-played games, but, um, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I don't think you know we talk other than that 1970 series that we've talked about. Um, it's hard to find you know specific moments that really stand out. Sure, sure. So the uh, the 75 season, uh, they uh, 45 and 39, which is fifth in the league. Uh, they new era for the team. Uh, Mel Daniels, Fred Lewis, and Roger Brown all end up in Memphis as uh, Mike Storen sort of tries to assemble uh, yeah. the the old team back there, which is unfortunately does not work out well for them. Um, they move to the new downtown Market Square Arena, and. Um, and then Nedelicki still sticks around as his last full season. He'll play a little bit in the uh, 76 season. Uh, Billy Knight and Len Elmore and Kevin Joyce are all added to the team and take major roles. Uh, Don Busey is also a uh, is a, a major force on the team. Um, I'm trying to remember if Keller was still there or if he was gone as well. No, he was still there. He was still no, he was there, still, yes. Yeah, every 12.5. Yes, there you go. So, um, so th- this team really... Uh, probably should not necessarily have gone to the finals and but they surprisingly were able to uh, beat the uh, Spurs who had added Donnie Freeman um to that team um four games to two in the West semis and with McGinnis scoring 51 points against uh, the Spurs in a playoff game and uh and then beat a really tough Nuggets team a 65 win Nuggets team in the West finals uh who had Ralph Simpson Byron Beck Dave Robish and also had added um Matt Calvin and uh, Bobby Jones, who would later become famous as the uh, Philadelphia 76ers uh, sixth man in the uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, with Dr. J's teams. Um, 
so they were able to, you know, really, uh, um, you know, have a couple of strong upsets in this playoffs, but that magic would end in the uh, finals against the uh, Kentucky Colonels, the uh, with, uh, of course, Guillaume Moore, Issel, Dampier, and also adding Marv Roberts and Ted McLean and coached now by Hubie Brown, who was able to finally get everything together with a Colonels team that perennially was a really strong regular season team, but would have several playoff disappointments. Yeah, that that seventy four seventy five Pacer season is probably the the best so called untold story of the franchise because that was suddenly they were a Cinderella team. You know, like you said, the core of that team Daniels Brown and Lewis had gone on to Memphis and then scattered around from there. Uh, but George McGinnis is at his absolute peak in this season. He's the co MVP with Julius Irving. Had the best single season the Pacer has ever had. Averaged nearly. 30 points a game and about 15 rebounds. Actually, he had 35% of his three-pointers that season. So he's at his absolute peak. There's no doubt that it's his team. You got a lot of new blood coming in. Like you say, Billy Knight was a great rookie, and they were playing in a new place, and there was just a kind of a new life. So, you know, that team started 4-11 and as they kind of got used to one another, but they hit stride, and they had some great playoff series. The, that San Antonio series in the first round, was known as the Hang 'em High series. <laughs> the marketing department of the Pacers, as it were, you know, would hand out cowboy hats to the stat crew. They would hang uh, referees in effigy, if you can imagine, <laughs> at an arena. They would take, make a dummy like a referee and hang them. Uh, they brought in Dancing Harry, uh, and older fans might remember Dancing Harry had kind of made a name for himself in the NBA. He would show up in games in New York and Baltimore and just go out on the floor during a timeout and start dancing and put a he'd put a whammy on the visiting team, that kind of thing. So the Pacers hired him to come in in that San Antonio series, and um, they would play Long Tall Glasses, the old Leo Sayre song, which probably most of our listeners aren't aware of, but you can find it on, you know, on YouTube or whatever. Long Tall Glasses became the theme song, and Dancing Harry would have on a cape and a big floppy hat and go out there and shake his hands at the visiting team's huddle and put a whammy on him. And they were flying him to road games. You know, they won that San Antonio series um, in a, a crazy series. Then they go to Denver, coached by Larry Brown. And because the Pacers um, won game two out there, kind of took control of the series, Denver responded with a witch. They dressed a woman up like a witch called a robata, and she would stand at the pacer into the court during pregame warmups and like stare at George McGinnis and try to you know put a hex on him. And it, it bugged George. You know George laughs about it now, but you know here you got this witch staring at you throughout the entire pregame warmups, and uh, so they had this kind of stuff going on. But the Pacers won that series in uh, seven games. Won it, again, won it on the road like they tended to do. And then they played Kentucky, and they just were not good enough to beat Kentucky. That was Kentucky's championship to win. But I think the fans were as almost as happy with that season as they were with the championship seasons because no one expected anything you know, out of that team. And you had George McGinnis, who was just tearing up the league, and then you had some promising young players. So that might have been you know, as fun and as entertaining a season as the Pacers ever had. And uh, McGinnis throughout those uh, throughout that postseason averaged uh, 32.3 points, 15.9 rebounds, and 8.2 assists. So obviously incredible, uh, incredible numbers. Um, I, I know money was all was sort of. Or I've read that money was 
uh, tight uh, a, a lot of the time, of course, with the the Pacers owners were not necessarily had had deep pockets, and that things became even more difficult because the owners were involved in the World Hockey Association's Indianapolis ra- Racers, and the financially they were sort of struggling, and uh, there was a you, you know added financial tension to the uh, team. Uh, going forward, which unfortunately they would end up losing um, George McGinnis in the next season, and would end up being uh, you know a, a weaker team as they the ABA ended and as they transitioned into the NBA. Even though they you know they still had um, Slick and Nancy Leonard as their coach in the front office, but unfortunately were uh, it, it was a number of years of um, relative struggles before the team was able to you know get competitive again. Um, Really, I guess by the you know the early '90s, with starting with the Reggie Miller teams. Yeah, no question. There was you know the '80s are kind of a lost decade for the Pacers. They made the playoffs twice during the 1980s and were you know defeated in the first round both times. But yeah, you know the combination. They never had ownership that had the financial resources to you know go out and get free agents or keep their own players. You know. They uh, they just couldn't keep George McGinnis. He basically doubled his salary by going to Philadelphia, jumping to the NBA, and nobody really resented him for it. You know, when they when he went to Philly, they came back to Indianapolis that following year to play a preseason game, and George got a standing ovation. It wasn't like fans were mad at him because they knew, you know, that he just got an offer he couldn't turn down. And you know, the Pacers also later lost Danny Roundfield. Uh, to free agency because they couldn't nearly match what Atlanta played Danny Roundfield. And there's actually a scenario, Jason, where if uh, if the Pacers could have re-signed Danny Roundfield when he was a free agent, they probably would have wound up with Larry Bird because, you know, Bird, after his junior year at Indiana State, was draft eligible, and the Pacers slick met with him at a downtown hotel. And, you know, the, the Pacers could have drafted him like Boston did and waited a year on him. Uh, but they just kind of knew they weren't going to have the money to sign Bird. And what had happened if Danny Roundfield had stayed, though, had if they had been able to re-sign Danny Roundfield, the ownership would have been patient enough to wait a year on Larry Bird. But by losing Roundfield, the ownership was kind of panicky. Like we got to get somebody. We got to bring a player in here who's going to interest the fans and sell some tickets. So they uh, drafted Rick Roby. And and with their first pick, and Roby was okay, as you know, but hardly a great player. But some of the ownership actually, I thought that Rick Roby was as good as Larry Bird. And uh, you know, Nancy Leonard claims that she told him, you know, look, we can get Larry Bird in a year. You know, wait on him for to finish. You know, graduate from Indiana State. But the uh, the ownership was just too impatient. They wanted uh, to get in a big name player to excite the fans a little bit so they went for Rick Roby with that draft pick instead of Larry Bird mm-hmm. you know one thing that that stands out to me as far as the you know this area of the Pacers go is that you know a- after they all you know after they all retired a, a lot of the guys um you know stuck around in Indianapolis and made their homes there I mean Daniels and um 
and Brown and uh, and Nitalicki. I know some of the others, you know, really were part of the community. And, um, you know, the, the, I know this team still has quite a strong, you know, there's, there's a strong memory and a strong feeling of affection for this team. It's obviously is the most, uh, you know, accomplished team in Pacers history and, you know, the and, and the most accomplished team of that era of basketball, you know, in, in general, even though it's, you know, probably unfortunately not as widely recognized as it should be uh, among people who aren't in Indianapolis or in, in the yeah. States. Yeah, yeah, they did stick around. They, excuse me, Mel Daniels had his rants. Roger Brown stayed. Uh, Nedelicki was kind of here. He went to Florida for a while, but he's been here for the most part. Uh, Billy, Billy Keller has stayed. Darnell Hillman was gone for a while, but came back at some point in the 90s and has stayed since then and has worked for the Pacers. So you had a core group and – you know, of course, Mel Daniels was a scout for about 25 years for the franchise and would be at a lot of games. And And Billy Keller has worked for the franchise as a shooting coach, no longer does, but uh, did for a while. So there's been that continuous connection between the community and, and, and those players. And, you know, the baby boomers here in town, people who went to those games, certainly have a lot of fond memories and you know how human nature is you tend to kind of filter out the negative memories and exaggerate the good memories but you know they um there's just a you know the city became a major league city during that time you know indianapolis throughout the 60s until the pacers were formed you know as high school basketball and butler you know and there was just no major league identity whatsoever for the city and the city was hungry for that and the aba afforded the city that opportunity to become a major league city so uh to have won championships it just kind of lifted the entire self-image i think of the city you know you know how it works in sports that fans kind of assume the identity of the team and if the team's winning a championship the fans feel like winners too in their lives and and that certainly happened here you know indianapolis is smaller market city we're a midwestern city you know like a lot of cities like that they tend to um, think that the world you know that the bigger cities look down on them and that the commissioner's office is against them and that type of thing and so when you have a team win championships like those teams did and have a coach as as a confident and volatile slick winner was it kind of lifts the self-image of the entire city would you like to uh, tell listeners about your work and, and let them know where they can uh, find your writing and anything you want to let them know about? Yeah, well, I uh, I covered the Pacers for 12 years for the Indianapolis Star, going from Larry Brown's last season as coach in 96, 97, all the way through the beginning of Jim O'Brien. So I was fortunate enough to cover the Pacer teams that went to the finals under Larry Bird and you know, I was in Detroit for the brawl and, you know, I had a lot of uh, great moments covering the team and certainly, you know, those stories can still be found online. But, um, you know, more recently I, I have freelance and I do um, work for Pacers.com. I write some historical stories and I go to the home games and write those. So those stories can be found at Pacers.com. I also have my own website, MarkMonteith.com, and it's M-O-N-T-I-E-T-H markmonteith.com and there I've collected a lot of the stories I've written uh, over the years a lot of kind of biographical stories on some of the players we've talked about like when Mel Daniels went into the Hall of Fame I wrote his life story same with Roger Brown same with Slick Leonard um, and I also had a radio show for six years 
here on the ESPN affiliate. Uh, kind of what we're doing now is like a one-hour show uh, where I kind of told people's stories. And I guess I did stories with Mel Daniels and Roger Brown and Slick Leonard and Bob Nedelicki and Freddie Lewis and Billy Keller and Rick Mount and, you know, so many of these pacers, Darnell Hillman, Billy Knight, and um, those are found on my website, uh, markmonteith.com. That's uh, a one-time subscription fee of nineteen ninety-five, uh, but you get, you know, almost three hundred podcasts, and you get a lot of stories. You get a book I wrote in nineteen eighty-eight when I had Inside Access to Produce program. Uh, yeah, I even stuck on, stuck a lot of photographs there of. Like, you know, for Mel Daniels' ranch. And, you know, I've got a little video of Mel working with his horses, that type of thing. So, you know, people who have interest in the ABA would probably find a lot of things to read and listen to at my website, markmonteith.com. Great. Well, um, thank you, Mark, so much for uh, taking uh, for for spending so much time talking about the Pacers. It was really enjoyable. I, I think uh, listeners will get a whole lot out of it. I know that I have. And, um, and thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. You can find us at harborparoxysm.com and uh, subscribe to the Overback Classic NBA podcast on iTunes or uh, Stitcher. Please leave a rating and review if you like what you're hearing. Uh, and also, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So um, until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Next time on Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. 27% of their total points, 30% of their team, uh, the team's total rebounds. I uh, played 40 minutes per game, and his 22.3 win shares, which is just an astronomical number, uh, was 10 more than his closest teammate. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.